Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. I really just want to start off this morning by saying thank you. Because last week I preached a message that could have easily been met with a num- like a defensiveness right? I talked about ways in which we contribute to the toxic cycles of acquisition and consumption, uh, about our tendency to hoard resources to the detriment of our neighbors. I gave a bit of history of a time, multiple times, when the United States has chosen hoarding instead of generosity and the, the wealth gaps that still exist because of it, especially in black and brown communities. I even preached what might be the most severe passage concerning hoarding and consumerism in all of Scripture, James 5. It says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. A couple weeks ago, I tweeted that I was going to preach about that, and everybody was like, don't do it. That's a bad decision. Yeah. But a bunch of other people were like, I've I've literally never heard that passage preached. I don't even know it was in the Bible. So I did all of that last week, and then after all of that, I ended by challenging each of us to stop hoarding to step back from consuming so much and to use any extra that we have to help people who don't have enough. Now, I I realize it's easy to hear all of that and to make excuses or get defensive, but you didn't. You did the exact opposite. So many of you contacted me or another one of the leaders at Restore last week to tell us what tangible action steps God was leading you to take in light of these truths. Here are a few of my favorites. Sarah went home, made a list of everything she wanted to bless someone else with, and then posted it on Facebook and tagged Restore's account so that anyone who needed something could just come and claim it, and she would give it to them. John told me he was going to go home and immediately purge everything from his storage unit. He said, I haven't touched any of it in over a year, so I obviously don't need it, and I bet someone else does. A woman named Amy, who has never been to Restore, stumbled onto Sunday's live stream last Sunday and then called the church phone to say she was so moved that she decided to make a donation online. And then Billy came up to me afterwards and suggested that we do a church-wide garage sale with everyone's extra and then give all the money away. So that's exactly what we're going to do. (laughs) I thought it was a phenomenal suggestion. I took it to our staff last week. They loved it as well. So in April, 
We are going to do a church-wide garage sale in partnership with one of our community partners, Louder Than Silence. Now, Louder Than Silence is one of our longtime community partners, and their mission is to empower survivors of sexual violence to seek help and healing. They do this primarily through workshops, support groups, mentoring, and by paying for survivors to go through the vitally important EMDR therapy program. Right now, they have 23 people on their waiting list to begin the EMDR program. The only thing standing between those 23 survivors and the help, the help that they need is funding. So how perfect is it that we can partner with LTS for this garage sale and then give all the money to them? So if you have some things that you were planning to give away, I'd love for you to hold on to it. I know that's like hoarding. That's not what I mean. Just hold on to it for a couple of months and be a, church, uh, be a part of this church-wide garage sale where 100% of the proceeds will go to helping survivors of sexual violence. More on that as we get closer to it. But listen, all of that, seriously, I just want to say thank you. Because instead of getting defensive... Instead of making excuses, y'all got out of your comfort zones and began working to make a difference. Y'all are amazing. It is such a privilege to be one of the pastors here at Restore. I really mean that. We started this, few, this series, if you haven't been here, a few weeks ago with a very specific goal, to develop a generous spirit, both as individuals and as a church family. And I'm so grateful to see that happening all around us. So if you haven't been here the past few weeks, let me catch you up a little bit. At the beginning of January, we started a new teaching series called Free from the Love of Money, principles and practices to help set you free from consumerism, materialism, and greed. And we did this because being held captive by those things doesn't just hurt us, it hurts everyone. Because consumerism, materialism, and greed cause us to misplace our priorities. What I mean by that is that as Christians, we are called to love people and use money. But those things, consumerism, materialism, and greed, teach us to do the opposite, to love money and to use people. They also teach us to believe the lie of scarcity, that there isn't enough for everyone to have what they need, and so we must hoard as much as we can. But like we said last week, hoarding doesn't just hurt the hoarder, it hurts everyone caught in their wake too. Because when someone takes more than they need, others are left with not enough. When one person hoards, another person goes without. This toxic behavior has infected so much of our society, of our world. But thankfully, God has given us the antidote, generosity. Developing a generous spirit is the key to being set free from consumerism, materialism, and greed. And it's how we also fix the brokenness that's caused by them. So over the last three weeks, we've looked at two principles and then the first practice that God gives us in Scripture to help foster a generous spirit. So principle one is it's not just money. The Bible talks about it a lot. Jesus even personifies it as this like negative spiritual force that we're tempted to place our trust into. So it's not just money. It's not just this unambiguous thing. It matters. Principle number two, we don't own anything. Scripture is clear. Everything on this earth was created by God, and God owns it. He sustains it. He gives it to us as stewards, as managers, to take care of it. And also, we can't take any of it with us, right? So it's all temporary anyway. And then practice number one, only take what you need. Talked about that last week, about what happens when we take more than we need, and how we're called to only take what we need, our daily bread from God and to give any extra we have to people who need it. This morning, we're going to dive deeply into the second and final practice, which is look for ways to be generous. 
Look for ways to be generous. Before we begin, I want you to know that this language here is very purposeful. So if you're around in the fall, you probably know we're in the middle of this thing we're calling our year around the table. And we're calling it that because our vision here at Restore is to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. And so back in August, we kicked off this year as a way to focus our attention on walking through what does it look like to embody this vision. And to do that, we were looking at these six measures of what someone's life looks like when they're seated at Jesus' table and doing everything they can to follow him. These six measures we use here at Restore all the time. There are our staff meetings, our leadership team meetings. They're right here. I depend on Jesus. I am part of the family. I live invitationally. I look for ways to be generous. I pursue justice for the marginalized, and I include everyone. So as you can see, practice number two is actually one of those statements. Because looking for ways to be generous is so vital in the life of a Christian that we really felt God calling us, leading us to choose it as one of these six core measures of following Jesus. Because generosity, y'all, both God's generosity toward us and our call to be generous with others is a central theme throughout all of Scripture, throughout God's great story. I actually think the folks at the Bible Project, raise your hand if you know what the Bible Project is. You ever heard of that? Incredible organization. I'm about to show you a video from them, but they have amazing resources. And we're one of their supporting churches, and we believe in them tremendously. So if you ever want to go deep on something, BibleProject.org, incredible resources. And I think they do the best job at explaining just how important generosity is in one of their theme videos. So here it is. Check this out. Imagine your friend invites you to a party. You arrive and there's lots of people, decorations, food and drink. There's enough for everyone. When you're hosted by someone that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture, but it's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world, under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this, look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way, too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough, and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy and anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over. It's turned into a battleground. But God wants humans to experience his generosity. And so he chooses one people, the family of Abraham. And he promises to give them the abundance that he wants for everybody else. God will provide what they need 
All they have to do is trust his generosity. And through them, the whole world will see how generous the host really is. But that's not what happens. Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, enter a land of abundance and they promptly forget the host who gave it to them. They act like it's all theirs and like there's not enough. And it leads to war and Israel's self-destruction. If I were the host of this party, I think I'd just give up. But God doesn't give up. What he does is surprising. He gives another gift. Another gift? Yeah, but this gift is different. What God gives is himself. All right, and Jesus, the host himself, comes to join in on the spoiled party. And notice, Jesus lives with the conviction that there is enough and that our generous host can be trusted. His mindset of abundance allowed him to live sacrificially and generously even towards his enemies. And Jesus called his followers to trust in God's abundance like him. And that's why he said things like, sell your possessions and give to the poor, or don't worry about your life. He's inviting us to live by a different story, one that is built on trust in God's goodness and love. But living generously doesn't mean life is gonna go well. I mean, look at Jesus. He was betrayed by his friends and he suffered. And this was no surprise to Jesus. He knew that people would take advantage of his generosity. In fact, that was his plan. Really? Yeah, think about it. Jesus knows that we're all hopelessly deceived by this lie that there's not enough. Yeah, that lie needs to be defeated. And so that's what Jesus was doing when he gave us the gift of his life. Jesus' death was the ultimate expression of God's generous love. Yeah, God's love can turn death into life. And scarcity back into abundance. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, you know the gift of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And Jesus called his followers to live like the real party has begun. Yes, he called it the kingdom of God. And our invitation to this party is yet another gift, the personal presence of God's own spirit that can teach us how to trust the generosity of the host, just like Jesus did. Yeah, and when you believe there's enough, you start seeing opportunities for generosity everywhere with our time and money, our attention. Yes, one of the most important ways that we can experience the abundance of God's new creation is sharing with others because of our trust that God is the generous host. I love that last line. One of the most important ways we can experience the abundance of God's new creation is sharing with others because of our trust that God is the generous host. God has been so generous with us not just by providing everything we need in creation, but even providing himself to fix everything that we broke. As they say in the video, God throws a party with more than enough for everyone. Humanity spoils the party by giving in to the lie and temptation of scarcity and greed, but instead of just throwing his hands up and walking away, God doubles down on his generosity. He gives us the greatest gift of all, himself in Jesus Christ. And through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus exposes scarcity for the lie that it is and restores the broken party, calling it simply the kingdom of God. And when we understand the truth that there is enough and that God can be trusted, we start seeing opportunities for generosity everywhere. Guys, we follow a God who has been abundantly generous with us. 
the only proper response is for us to be generous with others. It's the only proper response to that. As we've seen throughout this series, the exhortation to be generous is found all over the Bible. There are more than 2,300 verses in Scripture about how to handle wealth and possessions, most of them including a call to generosity. My favorite of these passages, though, is found in the New Testament letter from Paul to Timothy. If you aren't familiar with those two names, Paul was a persecutor of Christians who had a radical encounter with Jesus and became the most prolific pastor and church planter in the first century. And then Timothy was one of his pastoral protégés, a young man he was kind of mentoring in the faith. And in chapter 6 of this letter, Paul warns Timothy about the toxicity of scarcity and greed. He tells Timothy to be aware of people pretending to be godly just for the sake of financial gain. And then he says this, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, man of God, flee from all of this. And pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. You may recognize some of those attributes that Paul calls Timothy to pursue instead of wealth and possessions. These are the fruits of the Spirit, the natural overflow of living a life following Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, it's worth pointing out the stark dichotomy here. Paul tells Timothy that you can't pursue earthly riches and pursue the fruit of the Spirit at the same time. To pursue one is to flee from the other. Jesus made it even clearer when he said you cannot serve both God and money. There is a fork in the road. And each of us must choose a path. Do we serve God or do we serve money? It can be one or the other, but it cannot be both. Again, this is not saying that money is evil. It's not saying that having money, whether it's a little bit or a lot of it, is bad or sinful. It's not even saying that trying to earn enough money to provide for yourself and others is bad. That's admirable. But what Jesus, Paul, and the whole of Scripture teaches is that our posture toward money is what is paramount. What we do with the wealth and possessions that God has given us to steward is what matters most. Paul concludes this section of his letter to Timothy with instructions on what it looks like to steward resources in a godly way. Verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works And be generous and willing to share. Rich in good works, generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of a life that is truly life. Again, we see the dichotomy. You can put your trust in wealth or you can put your trust in God, but not both. But I want to focus on those two exhortations here. Being rich in good works and being generous and willing to share. Paul is making it so simple here, and I I love it. 
He knows, as we all do, that there are really only two things that any of us have to offer. That is our time and our resources. Those are the two things that we have to offer. Now, we can break those two categories down further, right? Time can include, like, our talents and our passion, our expertise and more. Resources can include liquid assets like money and our physical assets like our home and our things. Parse it out all you want, but everything comes back to those two broad categories. We have time and we have resources. Like the old saying goes, if you want to know what someone really cares about, look no further than their calendar and their bank account. That will tell you what they care about. In response to God's radical generosity to us, we are called to use our time to be rich in good works and our resources to be generous and willing to share. Now, all of us have a tendency to be more naturally willing to give one of those over the other, right? Some are all about volunteering their time, but struggle to be generous with their resources. Others find it easy to give money away, but struggle to be generous with their time. But God calls us to do both. We are to look for ways to be generous with both our time and our resources. And Paul says that if we will do this, we will take hold of the life that is truly life. We'll talk more about that in just a moment, what that means. But first, we've got to get real practical, okay? What does it really mean to look for ways to be generous? How can we take practical steps toward this calling to use our time and our resources in ways that honor God and support our neighbors? The most common answer to those questions in church is something called tithing. How many of you have heard of tithing? So many of y'all over the last three weeks have been like, when are you going to tell us that we have to give 10%? Like, that's coming, right? Just like tell me so I can get mentally prepared for it. Because like I know it's coming. Is this a building campaign? Are we doing a building campaign? Is that why you're doing this? Is the church behind? Are we destitute? What's happening? We have been so trained in church that we only talk about money and resources when the church usually needs something. Or maybe once a year just to get that tithe in there, try to catch any new people that haven't signed up for tithing yet. Here's how it usually goes. God has been generous with us. Definitely. We are called to be generous in return. Absolutely. And that means giving 10% of your income to the church. I don't know. They say if you just check that tithe box, then you're done. You've successfully fulfilled the Christian requirement to be generous. Just check that box. You can probably tell from my general tone and demeanor, I don't find that particular outlook to be helpful. I also don't really find it to be biblical, and let me explain what I mean by that. The idea of tithing originally comes from the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. But contrary to popular belief, one tithe was not required. It was three tithes. One was a tithe on land and flocks and produce that went to the temple. That's kind of the one we normally think of. 10% of anything that comes in, we give back. But that was only one of them. The second one was an annual tithe that went toward throwing a big party in your town similar to the grand banquet in the Bible Project video. Everyone was invited. The 10% annually went to support that. Then a third tithe was saved up and collected every three years to support what was essentially a food bank for people in poverty in your area. Now, scholars are a little divided on the overlap between these three practices, but it's generally agreed that the law, the Old Testament law, required Jewish people to give somewhere between 23 and 30% of their income away. 23 and 30% of their income away. Now, over the centuries, tithing has changed, right? 
It's been added to, even purposefully distorted. In today's world, it's often used by pastors as a way to just pressure people into giving a certain amount to their church. But I truly believe that tithing just so we can check off our generosity box is wrong. And I'm really not trying to be controversial. It would be way easier (laughs) for me to just sit up here and say, just tithe. Check the box. God requires you to do it. If you give your 10%, you're good. If you don't, you're sinning. That would be so much easier for me. But what I've tried to do throughout this series, and honestly, every single Sunday I come up here and talk with you, is to open the Bible with you all and try to understand what the Scripture is teaching in context and then apply it to our modern lives. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do it with this. So in that vein, let me show you something. Here is how the New Testament instructs a Christian to give. It's a little how to give chart. Generously, regularly, and systematically, proportionately, sacrificially, willingly, voluntarily, cheerfully, eagerly, enthusiastically, strategically, and diligently. Now, I know that's a lot. I'm not trying to overwhelm you. You see tithing in there? No. Now, listen, I know tons of people who tithe or give a certain percentage of their money in the way that I just described. They do all of these things while tithing and giving a certain percentage of their money away. That is awesome. The point of this is not that tithing is wrong or that this is just another checklist to replace your other checklist with. Here's my point, y'all. Generosity is about so much more than the amount of money we give or the amount of time we volunteer. It is about our disposition. It is about our heart. It is about how we interact with God and God's people and the people of this world. Are we just checking boxes? Are we living from a generous spirit? Are we just reactively giving because someone told us we have to do 10%? Or are we proactively looking for ways to be generous? Because I'm telling you, that is the mark of a Christ follower. Because here's the thing, when we look for ways to be generous with both our time and our resources, regularly, cheerfully, eagerly, sacrificially, and all those other adverbs listed in Scripture I just showed you, we will develop a truly generous spirit, and we will be set free from the toxicity of consumerism, materialism, and greed. We often think, if I only had more money, then I'd be generous. Or when I can just save up a little bit more, and I'll start giving some money away. Or when my schedule just frees up a little bit, and then I'll volunteer somewhere. But the pressure we feel, financial and time-wise, often has less to do with how much money we make and how much we're doing, and more to do with how we choose to spend what we make and to spend the time that we have. We think if we could just get more on the front end, then we could give more on the back end. But however much time or resources you have, it is about intentional choices that you are making with those things, whether you have a little or a lot. Our financial pressure would make no sense to over half the world's population. Think about that. If we sat down with them and explained with them how much money we make and then how much needs to go out and then all the financial pressure we feel, they would be baffled. They would be confused by that. Now, I want to be clear here. This is not true for everyone. Scarcity is a lie. 
But because people have believed and acted upon that lie, scarcity has become a reality for many folks, including many of you listening right now, here in the room, online. You don't have any extra. You are forced to choose between necessities because you don't have enough. And if that's you, I want you to know something. Having a generous spirit is not just about giving. It's about receiving, too. Remember last week, this scripture, 2 Corinthians? Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. That word plenty there, it literally means extra. Paul is instructing the church to fill the gap between extra and not enough in people's lives. If someone has extra, a generous spirit looks like giving it away. If someone doesn't have enough, a generous spirit looks like receiving help, allowing someone else, allowing your church family to come alongside you and support you. The church, the body of Christ, us, we exist to fill the gap between extra and not enough. We are a family. We belong to one another. So if you find yourself in a place where you don't have enough, where you are not able to provide basic needs for you or your family, our church exists to fill that gap. That's why we have our benevolence team. This is a group of people under the leadership of our care pastor, Mark Jordan, who freely distributes resources so that folks can pay rent when they're behind or or bills when they're past due or get groceries that they need or or whatever. But listen, the only way this works is if we all develop generous spirits. Those who have extra need to give generously. And those who don't have enough need to generously receive. Because someday, those who have extra now might find themselves in a place of need. And those in need now might find themselves with extra. And like Paul said, at the present time, your extra will supply what they need. So that in turn, their extra can supply what you need. This is how God designed the church. This has been our purpose for thousands of years. The body of Christ exists to fill the gap between extra and not enough. If we will lean into this truth, if we will look for ways to be generous, then as Paul said to Timothy, we will take hold of the life that is truly life. There is no life in greed, but there is abundant life in generosity. This is exactly what Jesus said right before he told that story of the rich fool we've been talking so much about throughout this series. And Jesus said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There is no life in the endless cycle of accumulation and consumption. Greed leads to grief, but generosity leads to joy. Greed leads to grief, but generosity leads to joy. I love how Steve Atkinson says it. He says, we're tempted to think we'll be happy when we accumulate enough. But the biblical story consistently emphasizes the life we truly desire comes when we give, not when we consume or hoard. Experience seems to confirm this truth. Have you ever met an unhappy, generous person? I have not. Once you start giving, you don't want to stop. I'm going to end today. I want to tell you a quick story of these two Harvard grads that found this out firsthand. Their names are John Cortinez and Greg Bomber. 
Now, John, he was all about saving money. The password for his online bank was retire at 40. He was making well over six figures as a petroleum engineer right out of college, but he actually decided to go get his MBA at Harvard so he could move overseas and make even more money, moving toward that retire at 40 goal. Now, Greg was the exact opposite. Greg was all about spending money. He loved to go on lavish vacations, treat his friends to extravagant dinners. He made $250,000 a year as an analyst in a private equity firm, again, right out of college. But he wanted to earn more as well so he could make even bigger purchases. So he decided to go get his MBA at Harvard, too. John and Greg meet in an intro class their first semester at Harvard Business School and become friends. Because in addition to bonding over their desire to make a ton of money, they were both very committed Christians who had been diligently tithing since they could remember. They talked about seeing the tithe as like a membership fee for their church, right? Like they receive goods and services from the church, and they give their membership fee back. Made sense? But because of their shared interest in faith and wealth, they decide to take one of their required elective courses at Harvard Divinity School, and they take a class called God and Money. And the professor took them on a biblical overview of wealth and possessions, a more kind of in-depth version of what we've been doing throughout this series. And both John and Greg begin to realize that they have completely misunderstood the Christian call to generosity. They were so impacted by these biblical truths, the same ones that we've been looking at, that they decided to do something kind of radical for their final project in this class. So John and Greg get access to Harvard Business School's Christian alumni database. This is 300 email addresses of HBS grads who identified as Christian. And they sent all 300 folks an email survey asking them about their habits of generosity. And unbelievably, they get over 150 responses. And they start to dig through these survey responses. And they begin to read stories of staggering generosity. One family was outgrowing their home, and they began to look for a larger one. But after looking around for a while, they decided that they were going to make their existing home work, and they were going to give away the $100,000 they'd saved up as a down payment for the next home to their church instead. Another guy who makes millions a year decided to give away 90% of his income instead of building up wealth. He had a big life insurance policy for him, for his family, but 90% of everything that came in went out, and he lived on 10. Story after story they discovered of radical generosity. John and Greg kept wondering what would possess people to behave this way. But thankfully, they included this why question at the end of the survey. And get this, the people who spent their lives looking for ways to be generous kept saying like the exact same thing, which was something like, we do it because we've never experienced joy that compares with how it feels to be radically generous. We've never experienced anything like it. The joy is incomparable. Like I said earlier, John was a saver and Greg was a spinner, and they both thought that they were experiencing joy by doing these things. But they quickly realized that it paled in comparison to the joy that comes from generosity. That class and that survey changed everything for John and Greg. They both graduated and went into nonprofit out of Harvard Business School. If you want to read their full story, they wrote a great book called God and Money, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. But listen, here's the thing. 
Here's what John and Greg found out, that Jesus, Paul, and everyone else in Scripture has been trying to tell us all along. Generosity not only helps us break free from consumerism, materialism, and greed. Generosity unlocks joy. Generosity unlocks joy. Developing a generous spirit, one from which we are able to freely give and freely receive, helps us experience that life that is truly life. That abundance that Jesus wants for all of it. When they asked Jesus, why did you come? He said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That life that Jesus wants for each and every one of us is unlocked through generosity. Two other people have found this out firsthand. They're Brian and Violet Sullivan. Some of you know them. They're a part of our church here at Restore. They have spent the last few years making these principles and practices. We've been talking about a reality in their lives, and their family has been completely transformed. So I'm so excited that next Sunday we're going to get to hear from Brian about what it has looked like to do this in his family's life as we wrap up our Free from the Love of Money series. This series has been a really fun ride. I just want to say thanks again for going on it with me. I've loved it, and I'm happy to chat through any questions or comments that you have. I've met with a bunch of you already over the last few weeks that are just like, I don't know how this works. How how does this work practically? How does this understand this biblically? I, I would love to do that with you. Happy to do that with you. And thank you again for how you all have just so generously responded to this. It's such a beautiful thing to behold. I'm teaching you all this two reasons. I believe it's my job. It's a shepherd as the person who is trying to help you relate to the truths of Scripture. But way more than that, it's because I have experienced joy that comes from generosity, and I want you to experience it too, because I love you, and I care about you, and I want you to have that abundant, full life that Jesus talks about. That's why I'm up here doing this. So let me pray. Lord God, you are so good. You are so generous, and we are so grateful. Thank you, God, that even as you made the most generous party in the world and gave us everything that we need, and then even after we got spooked, got scared, believed the lies of scarcity and greed and messed it all up, God, that you didn't walk away. You doubled down on your generosity. And thank you that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have been empowered to live lives of generosity too. God, I pray that we do that. I pray that we lean into that. Transform our hearts, transform our lives. Help us to be people marked by generosity as individuals and as our church. I pray that our church would have a reputation in this community, in this city, and around the world as a church that just does beautifully generous things that helps, that serves, that looks for ways to do good. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.